A student demonstration, outside the Stark Industries weapons plant, has erupted into violence. Four young people have been reported killed by Stark's lackeys. The politician H. Warren Craddock has been murdered by a mob, egged on by the vigilante gang known as the Avengers. A mystic explosion in Rutland, Vermont, has resulted in a number of townspeople being buried alive. The American magician Doctor Strange is suspected. The gladiator and his confederate, Daredevil, have reportedly hijacked a plane from Switzerland to the United States. The Human Torch and Spider-Man, were seen conspiring with the Sandman, following his release from prison. And, following unprovoked aggression by the Fantastic Four, the alien known as Gabriel the Airwalker, has announced the imminent end of the world. We'll have more on that later, if there is, a later. This is Doombot JB6 for the VOL. Zero. Two. Eight. This is, the voice of Latveria. Zero. Two. Eight. Here in Latveria, we get news from all over the world. The news may be good, or bad, but we will always tell you the truth, as Lord Doom sees it. Every week on The Voice of Latveria, we examine Marvel Comics history, through the career of its greatest hero, Dr. Victor Von Doom. And now, here's your host, Douglas Walk, the man who has read every Marvel superhero comic book, and lived to tell us all about it. Thank you so much, Doombot JJ12. So we're looking this week at Submariner number 47 through 49. And our guest this week is the amazing Joe Strecker, the host of the Weird History Podcast. Joe, welcome. I'm really curious what you made of these. I really liked them, actually. I really liked the relationship between Namor and Dr. Doom. Namor, Namor, I've never been entirely clear. On Nobody which... has ever been entirely clear. Okay, good to know. Yeah. Doom and I'm just going to call him Submariner because it's easier. Okay. Uh, have had this weird back and forth relationship since pretty much, in fact, uh, the issue after Doom was introduced. Doom first appears in Fantastic Four number five. Fantastic Four number six is the first time the two of them meet up. And they have had this kind of running on again, off again, collaboration, rivalry, sometimes active war ever since then. Uh, they they had a series together in the mid-70s, Supervillain Team-Up. Reading this makes me want to check that out, actually. Yeah. That kind of, we are both monarchs, but we have really, really different ideas about what that involves. That kind of contrast between them shows up pretty much every time that uh, they turn up together. They're both incredibly arrogant, which is really fun to see. Uh, and they have very, very different sorts of domains. I like that they're also very arrogant in different kinds of ways. Yeah. Like uh, Submariner or Namor or Namor. Yeah. <laughs> he seems to be kind of smug. He yes. seems to be just sort of quietly superior um, about, you know, all of his interactions with the surface world and humans and everything like that. Doom lets you know. <laughs> Right. Doom will like talk about why he is better than you. Uh, Namor will just stand there and just be better than you. And yeah. it's interesting to see that kind of like loud and quiet type of arrogance work together. Doom covers himself head to toe in armor. Namor wears a pair of uh, super tiny trunks. Yeah. yeah, yeah. 
Though not at the beginning of this issue. It's kind of arresting at the beginning of this issue to see him in uh, human clothing, which I guess is a signal that he's not doing too well. Yeah, uh, and you know, that's that's essentially what he was doing the first time he turned up in Fantastic Four after having been out of comics for 10 years or so. We saw him there you know, on Skid Row mm -hmm. uh, in the Bowery, uh, having lost his memory, living in a flop house. Weirdly, this first story is called Doom's Mask, which doesn't really have anything to do with the story. But when Jerry Conway was writing the Doctor Doom feature in Astonishing Tales a year before this, his last episode ended with next issue, Doom's Mask, and the next issue didn't happen. Okay, yeah. Calling it Doom's Mask makes it sound like Doctor Doom's throwing a costume party. Yes. And I would absolutely read that story. I would also absolutely want to go to that costume party. Yeah, oh no, it'd be great. Uh, we were just uh, actually talking a couple of weeks ago on the show about what kind of cocktail party dinner conversation goes on at parties where Doom is present. Mm. It's usually like, oh my God, it's that guy who invited him. <laughs> we have uh, uh, Namor running around uh, being angry and hopping a freight car and having kind of visions of his father or who might be his father. And I mean, it, it is a Gene Colan action sequence. And when Gene Colan was drawing comics, he loved to kind of draw out action sequences and not leave a lot of room for exposition. He would just draw whatever he thought was interesting and until he ran out of pages. Uh, and that's that's very much what's going on here. Uh, I mean, the point is to get the, the two of them together. And Doom doesn't actually show up until halfway through this first issue. And when he does, he just kind of like gets a giant splash panel, occupies two thirds of the page and seems to be holding something glowing in his hand, which uh, we never really find out what it is. It's just Gene Colan doing this kind of like fantastically evocative effect that, that doesn't actually refer to anything. So in these early panels, uh, we see uh, Submariner. He's on this train. Right. Uh, he's basically riding the rails with a bunch of vagabonds. Right. And one of the things that uh, caught my eye, um, I wonder if this was intentional, is that he is wearing an orange flannel shirt and green pants. And I wonder if that is supposed to be an Aquaman ref reference or riff or something like that. Or if that's just a complete coincidence. It certainly seems like it could be when now, now that you mentioned it, even the kind of like plaid slash scaly pattern on, uh, on his shirt. Yeah, that, that seems, that seems very possible. Yeah. Um, have they ever met by the way, in any kind of like uh, DC Marvel crossover or did they get amalgamated in amalgam comics or anything like that? They did not get amalgamated. I'm pretty sure they met in like the JLA Avengers team up. I don't okay. remember the, the circumstances there's also uh a situation where Steve Skeets was writing the Submariner series at the very, very end of its run and left it off on sort of a cliffhanger. And then a few years later was writing Aquaman at the end of its run and resolved that cliffhanger in Aquaman. Okay. <laughs> kind of like how didn't, uh, didn't basically Barry Allen after Crisis on Infinite Earths show up in the Marvel universe as somebody named Buried Alien. Yes, in Quasar. Okay. Yes. But yeah, uh, Submariner, he's on this train. He's doing pretty badly until he uh, picks up a train car and flings it um, a fair amount of space. 
Yeah. And yeah, that is, when does Doom show up? Yeah, we don't see him until after Submariner uh, makes a ruckus um, in, in Boston, gets the attention of national media. Uh, later on, he walks through a bunch of panels that look like the cover of a uh, trashy Pulp Fiction novel where he meets a young woman who seems very like the kind of woman who would be on the cover of those novels, who saves him, takes him back to her apartment. She seems to be, you know, kind of enthusiastic about the mysterious attractive man she's found. And then Doom shows up. Yeah, for <laughs> no reason at all, just shows up at the door, at, at, shows up at the door of this uh, woman, Cindy Jones, who has some kind of Florence Nightingale complex. Right, right. And yeah, he is at, Doom is absolutely holding something molten on fire in his hand. And uh, yeah, we have no idea what that is. And that, of course, uh, Namor responds by attacking him for, well, I mean, basically, because that's what happens in the plot. Yeah. Is this the first time they've ever fought? Oh, no, no. They, okay. they you know, they, uh, they fight pretty much every time they meet. Uh, okay. That's cute. All, when, 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 well, the first time that they teamed up in, in like Fantastic Four number six, uh, Doom betrayed Namor and left him to die in outer space. So uh, he's never really forgiven him for that. Um, I do, I do enjoy it that in the middle of this fight, uh, there is a cut to an older couple who is just kind of sitting there minding their own business. And one of them says that there is a simple explanation for why this armored guy and a fish man are fighting. And the, uh, the husband says, perhaps they're with the Census Bureau. <laughs> and that's one of my favorite things that happen in comics where you see like normal everyday people just rationalizing away whatever comic book stuff is happening around them. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and of course, like we, we don't actually see any more of that couple. It's just like, a panel with them and then they're apparently like fighting onward beyond their apartment except that they're still fighting next to the couch and doom accidentally sets the couch on fire and then puts the fire out with his like finger fire extinguisher yeah like doom's sort of like finger gadgets seem to play a like big role in this because they're also falling and at one point he levitates them with his finger levitators I also love it that during this fight, he says, I despise melodrama. Yes. Which I do not believe. Anybody who says, like, I hate drama, or especially mm -hmm. if they wear a t-shirt that says, I hate drama, you can tell they love drama more than anything. Doom loves drama. Yeah. No drama. I don't want any Yeah, sure you do. Um, uh, then the fight ends because that's what happens in the plot. And because Cindy Jones uh, comes along and says, like, no, no, stop fighting. You're going to hurt him. And suddenly they uh, make up and decide to go to the Latvian embassy where there are Van Gogh and Lautrec paintings. Which are real. Um, yeah. She asks if they're real and they absolutely are. Yeah. Uh, the Van Gogh actually looks like a Gilbert Hernandez drawing for some reason. One thing I would love to believe is that not only are these paintings real, but Doom used his time machine to go get them during a time period when they would have been contemporary. Oh, that seems that seems highly reasonable, actually. Um, I mean, we know that Doom values his paintings enormously. There's a Fantastic Four story where the climax is that one of 
Doom's agents is going to like set a wing of his museum on fire in order to get rid of the Fantastic Four, and Doom kills him instead and says, you, you can't endanger those paintings. They're irreplaceable. That's good of him. Yeah. Once we've established that Submariner and Doom are friends again, and Doom now has a jet with a giant sort of stylized gothic D painted on the on the fuselage. This whole storyline also seems to love this jet because the shots that we get of it and also the purple prose describing all the different ways it, it flies yes. is just amazing. Like, I felt like this story was just an excuse to like just lavish love upon Doom's airplane, kind of like the script lavishes love on the Enterprise in like Star Trek motion picture. Oh, absolutely. You know, uh, again, in Doom's first appearance, he's got a helicopter with kind of a tiger face painted on the front. And we haven't really seen that again. Um, or no, it's like a shark helicopter more like, uh, but to you, he's, he has, he has fancy aircraft. And again, it's like whatever Gene Colan fears, feels like drawing at any given time. Okay. Uh, it's, these seem to have been very much drawn the Gene Colan way. When I, I spoke with Jerry Conway a while ago, uh, he said like, oh yeah, um, working with Gene, I realized I had to give Gene at least a pretty tight plot and maybe sometimes a full script because if I didn't, he would just like find something that he felt like drawing in the script or in the plot. And then two thirds of the story would be that and everything else would be crammed into like a few pages. And this being the, uh, this being the Silver Age, you can have just like a wall of text in a single panel and deal with it. <laughs> you can uh, potentially, but uh Finally, in the last panel of this first part, we see Modoc at last, after Modoc's be, been discussed a little bit before, and Modoc now has a cosmic cube, and we don't we still don't really understand why our protagonists are teaming up again, what exactly Doom wants, but you know, it's there's there's a lot of excitement. There's a lot of melodrama. Cindy Jones is throwing herself into uh, the now uh, cleaned up nice Atlantean's arms. And uh, that's that's pretty much the size of the first part. Yeah, she's just coming with them for reasons. Yeah. Uh, yeah. There's, yeah. This is what Modoc's also third appearance, fourth appearance? No, it's, it's a real early one. Yeah. Um, so I had watched the uh, a little bit of the Hulu show with Modoc in it, okay. and watching that and then reading this was quite the whiplash. With regards to... <laughs> yes. So I, I've only seen like five minutes worth of the Hulu show. So uh, can you can you describe a little like what it is? Um, it is Robot Chicken with Modoc. Okay. So Robot Chicken was a stop motion sketch parody show in the early 2000s that featured recognizable pop culture uh, pop culture figures doing body gross weird things that were kind of in character and very very exaggerated very oftentimes like killing each other or in various sexual situations or whatnot the modok show is like a sitcom where he is basically the bumbling sitcom dad but there's also issues of him trying to run aim aim is taken away from him in the show the central antagonist is a guy who's kind of like a mark zuckerberg figure and he's <laughs> trying to he is trying to get aim back from this company that's taken it away from him right he's also trying to regain the love of his family so 
he has his wife who's a normal human. I don't recall her name. Uh, he has one of his daughters is like him with a very large head and she's in a floaty chair. Um, and you have those parallel sort of struggles for him where he's trying to get his company back and get his family back because he's a down and out loser dad figure. In this, he is very much not that. In this, he is supposed to actually be kind of grotesque and terrifying. But I think Modoc has become a bit more comical like yeah. like later on. And I feel like he is a good example of what is known as Kirk drift or flanderization. Tell me more about this. So Kirk drift is um, basically talk, basically a phenomenon where people think about like what Captain Kirk is and what he means. Right. And people, when they think about Captain Kirk, they usually think of a Zap Brannigan from Futurama type figure. Okay. He's like this shoot first, ask questions later, uh, later type figure. He is, you know, brash. He's arrogant. He'll kick down the door, go in with guns blazing. And of course, he is just hopelessly libid- libidinal, just in there for the ladies with various different species hanging off of him. That's what he's about. Right. The problem with that is that if you go back and watch the original Star Trek, Kirk's not really like that. He actually tends to be a bit more um, strategic, a bit more like restrained. And when we do see him with a love interest, it's usually an ex. Uh, Several of his exes show up in a show and it's implied that they were all in like long-term monogamous relationships as opposed to hooking up after a bunch of explosions. Um, When he does have one-off relationships in the show, uh, it's actually oftentimes when he has either amnesia or he's being mind controlled. There is an episode where he like basically goes to a hippie planet that has very questionable depictions of people who are kind of sort of like Native Americans. Right. It's, it was a 60s, it does not hold up. But he um, does not have his memory during that episode and Kirk hooking up in that context is not really fully himself. Right. But people remember him as this sort of like hotshot lover boy and when you go back to the original text, it doesn't support that. Flanderization, I'm okay. sorry, I'm going off on a total tangent here. This is great, bring it up. Flanderization is where you have the most salient and notable aspects of a character become bigger and more caricatured as a work moves on. So Ned Flanders in early, uh, early sort of seasons of The Simpsons, he's just this kind of like nice neighbor guy. He is supposed to be a pretty good dad. He is church going. Uh, He is concerned with like having a nice lawn and keeping his house in good working order, but he's not fussy. He's not like hyper religious. And he's also like not the kind of like mirror image of Homer Simpson's slovenliness. As he goes on though, he becomes more fussy, more religious, you know, more extremely rule following. And all of those like slight traits become more and more exaggerated until that's what the character is. And I think we're seeing an early version of MODOK here that is a little bit comically grotesque. And later on, we'll see the Kirk Drift, Flanderized version of MODOK, who goes full on comically grotesque to the point where he's voiced by Patton Oswalt. So I think the turning point in this may have been, I may, may be mistaken about this, but it seems like the, the turning point for MODOK was 2004 and the publication of a zine called the Journal of Modoc Studies. Okay. Uh, there were, I believe, three issues of this, and it was a kind of tongue-in-cheek and kind of not academic journal about just absolutely everything having to do with Modoc. Okay. 
when he's appeared in the last 15 years or so, it has almost always been as a comedy move instead of a like, this thing is so weird and horrifying move. Yeah, in this, he's very much playing the role of, we have two two sort of villain protagonists. Well, right. Submariner is kind of on the edge, yeah. but they're like, okay, we need them. To, we need uh, Doom and Submariner to like go on a heist. Who can they fight who's worse than them? Right. Like who is actually frighteningly grotesque and evil and like not somebody that you would want to root for. Uh, and he's playing that role. It's kind of like Walter White fighting Nazis in Breaking Bad. You know, you have uh, you have just a terrible person as your main character. Give them somebody worse to go up against. Right. Modoc is our designated antagonist here, except uh, there has to be some sort of explanation of how he survived his apparent death uh, the last time he appeared, which was in Captain America, like a year or so before this, and because it's Gene Cullen pacing it, we get like two pages of that in the middle. And finally, Modoc shows up at confronting our title character on the final page of the second part of a two part of a three part story. It says, you know, take him to the cosmic cube. Now, as you say, this is kind of a heist story. And what they're supposed to be heisting is apparently the cosmic cube. So that that may be sort of short circuiting the absence of heist narrative up to this point. Mm -hmm. Like, let me take you to the thing that you're on the quest for. Yeah. Well, it seems to go from, it seems to go from, uh, you know, down and out road story to kind of a noir to then like a standard superhero story. Then it turns into a heist. Like there's, there's the noir bit where uh, Cindy's friend Arlene's like, Demi satanic pusher slash pimp uh, busts in through her beaded curtain and pulls a gun on everybody. And that's not a good thing to do when the submariners around. Yeah. This guy's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> like, I, I felt like he jumped out of like every kind of hippie exploitation piece of media from the 1960s. <laughs> yeah. The just giant medallion he's wearing around his neck and his glasses and everything. With an like, iron cross on it. I know that's just so weird and uh, yes. yeah, yeah. Uh, this guy has a lot going on. What, what do you make of this, this middle part of the story? Um, this middle part of the story where they get attacked by the hippie, maybe pimp, maybe dealer type guy. <laughs> um, again, he comes in to move the story forward. Yeah. I think it was Louis L'Amour who when asked about how, prolific he was he said that whenever he had writer's block he just had two guys bust down a door with guns blazing yeah. and that's kind of what happens here yeah, where this guy shows up to basically create drama shoot namor and of course that is a bad idea you will not get very far if you just shoot him with a gun and uh namor ends up tearing up a bunch of floorboards uh which you know knocks a guy over bullet ricochets off of him and then one of Doom's uh, jetpack minions shows up and, you know, abducts Cindy. Because, because that's what happens. Yeah, because that's what happens. This is a lot of things that are happening just like because they need to, yeah. but also the story kind of moves. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's not like there is a lot of and then 
rather than but or therefore. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but I do think that the characters are used pretty well. Uh, and then uh, we eventually get another amazing splash page of Dr. Doom's airplane, which looks slightly different now because the D has changed. It's now got some little scroll work underneath it. Wow. So it does. Yeah. Um, but yeah, the middle part is just kind of um, setting up for them to go uh, break into advanced idea mechanics. And Namor has to do that subnautically, obviously. Right. Yeah. Whereas, Do and Dr. Doom is approaching from the air. Right. Um, also, we see a bunch of Doom's minions here. So over the years, like what has been a relationship between Doom and his people? Like, I think here they're played as kind of like, he has maybe kind of a tenuous grasp on authority because he has to rein them in a couple of times. A few of them sort of like say, I've never seen him like this. A few of them also sometimes, um, I was also reading, um, some incredible Hulk issues right. where Doom shows up. And in those, they seem extremely deferential and almost zombie-like. So like, what is Doom like as a boss during this, uh, this time? He's not a great boss. Mm -hmm. uh, he, he doesn't like anybody taking initiative. He doesn't like anybody even implying anything about himself that he would not like to be the case he eventually kind of moves past henchmen as we know them to just using robots. Okay. And just using new bots. Yeah. Um, we know that he, he likes very much to never be able to be nailed down. Mm. Uh, he likes the confusion of like, was it doom or was it the doom bot? The, oh, there seems also to be a, a sort of tension here between him and his henchmen which I found like a little bit strange. Yeah. Uh, jumping forward a little bit to something that happens with Cindy. But yeah, that seemed to be like, yes. oh, he does not actually have like an iron grip over all of his guys, which seemed a little a little tiny yeah. bit undoom. It's, it's the kind of thing that can, tends to get uh, punished by somebody getting vaporized. Right. Uh, and then Namor yeah. fights a stingray. <laughs> because he has... Now... Walter Newell, who he mentions in the scene where he's fighting the Stingray, eventually takes on the superhero identity of Stingray. Right. Yeah, he the Stingray like the Stingray like jogs his memory a little, and he thinks about that guy. Apparently, uh, and then he gets like zapped by a zap gun that emerges from the ocean floor, uh, and then some stuff like explodes for no reasons that make any sense. Well, it implies that advanced idea mechanics is specifically guarding against like a water-based entry to their base. We get a little of Doom, then we get a little of Modok explaining uh, his survival and introducing his android army. One of Doom's minions uh, tries to grope Cindy and, oh, but then uh, Doom shows up and says, A man like you does not deserve to live. And that's it for that guy. Yeah, this was weird. Um, because, uh, uh, okay. I think it's great that doom is stepping in and preventing a sexual assault and vaporizing yes. the guy, maybe a little disproportionate, but like he's Dr. Doom, but this seems right. to be an opportunity to basically show doom as being kind of like, I guess, gallant or something like that. Um, that's the wrong word for it. Getting us on doom's side a little like, 
Right. Here's a bad, here's a really bad thing that this guy was about to do. Doom is stepping in and he is preventing it and saying uh, like he doesn't allow it. It's supposed to, I think, curry a little bit of our sympathies with him, but it's at the cost of like this minor character getting kind of sexually assaulted. So it doesn't really mm. work. Yeah, no, it really does yeah. not. Um, and uh, then we get like a page of Namor wandering around, uh, seeing some bright lights and boom, suddenly, finally Modok shows up. Finally. Dramatically. Dramatically. Splash pagely. Yeah. Saying, I am Modok, and next yes. time, the Dreamstone. Yes. Which, in fact, is the title that it keeps. Uh, and uh, Modok immediately has his uh, androids attack the Submariner and get beaten up. This This third part is really, there's a whole lot of, like, uh, we're just going to draw a whole lot of chaotic stuff on the page and let it sort itself out later. Yeah. So what was, uh, what was Conway's like writing process? You mentioned this a little bit. Uh, was it kind of like the Lee and Kirby thing where he would just do, you said it was more, a more complete script, right? Well, when I talked to him, he said, like, I learned quickly that when I worked with Gene, like I had to give him something fairly complete that at least had page by page breakdowns. But it it was definitely you know script after art okay um so would he also have been giving him like panel instructions about each of these little fight bits or is that all or is that all from the artist that's all from the artist okay pretty clearly yeah <laughs> yeah uh he really likes uh drawing very wide punches yeah yeah and it so colin had been drawing comics for a couple of decades by the time he came to marvel uh, and had really been doing mostly like pretty subdued, pretty like four square panel compositions. And then comes to Marvel, he initially starts drawing under the name Adam Austin so that his editors at DC won't know that he's moonlighting. Mm. Uh, but Stan Lee apparently just encourages him like, no, you're doing some really dynamic stuff here. Take that further, push more, do, do it more like, do it more like this. And his layouts start getting wilder. His, you know, the body language starts getting much, much broader. Everything is at crazy canted angles. Everything is just you know, seen from some direction that makes it look as dramatic as possible. And it looks just wildly different from what he'd been doing even like six or seven years earlier. Uh, I will say, I do think that really fits with the uh, Submariner. Yeah. Because one of the things I did like about these scenes which was a lot of action for action's sake, is that it works really, really well with his physicality. Yeah. Like you can clearly see that like uh, this guy has sat down and really thought about what pectorals and abs look like. Yeah. And uh, you, you get a sense of Submariner as a kind of powerful muscular figure, uh, even though he is just a mostly naked guy in a speedo. Yeah. And I, I like it that, um, I like it that you definitely uh, read him as being a superhero, uh, even as he is fighting in his skivvies, because right. it has so much potential to look ridiculous and unbelievable. Um, but no, like I, I believe in his punching power. Yeah. Yeah. Everything is, everything is real high impact in this comic. Yeah. Uh, also, when the androids eventually overpower him, you just see him slayed out in the most sort of dramatic pose possible, where he is like chest up, 
arms out, his <laughs> neck is back, and he looks like, yeah, he looks like somebody who has just been like, had the life beaten out of him, and he wants to just splay out, but also still look really sexy while he's doing it. Right. <laughs> yeah, uh, that's, that's, pre that's pretty much uh, what's going on here. So nominally, this is fight over the cosmic cube. Do we actually get to see the no, we see a box uh, that says danger radioactivity, and then it has a button that's labeled cosmic cube. And the button opens a kind of chamber. And we see Namor looking at it and saying, No, never did I dream. No, we don't actually see the cosmic cube. No, we don't. Uh, it, maybe this is like a weird thought. It kind of reminded me of the, the light in the movie, The Lighthouse. I do not know this. Oh, it's the um, Robert Pattinson, Willem Dafoe movie. Okay. Uh, there is a light in the lighthouse. You never actually get to see what it is, but you see characters react to it. And whatever it is, is quite the thing apparently, because it uh, apparently is very beautiful and drives you insane. Wow. <laughs> anyway. That seems about right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, I was uh, surprised we didn't actually see the Cosmic Cube, especially since it's a big old MacGuffin in the MCU. Yeah. Uh, at this point, has the Cosmic Cube even been established as an artifact? Do we it like has, know? and okay. like, it's a little glowing yellow cube. Mm -hmm. Like it's just there. There's there's nothing that spectacular looking about it. And it does cube things. It it does anything the plot requires it to do. Awesome. It, it is a magical plot fulfilling machine. I love it. Yeah. Um, so the impression I kind of got, maybe I'm way misinterpreting this, is that Modoc was maybe trying to do a body switch with uh, Namor, trying to do a Freaky Friday thing. Am I misreading huh. that? It could be. Um, I mean, it's it's real hard to tell anything that was supposed to be happening here, and it's kind of hard to tell what actually is happening here. <laughs> yeah, because he says, I know Modoc had a mind to change me in some way, and to do that, he'd need to use the Cosmic Cube. Hmm. Uh, but they don't really go into what kind of change he has in mind for Submariner. Yeah. I don't, I don't think that is ever made clear. Okay. Yeah. Um, but so there, there's a giant fight and somehow, you know, uh, Cindy gets involved as Doom is trying to head for the cube because he has to get the cube. Oh, but Doom says, uh, With the aid of the cube, I might have transformed myself, saved myself from this endless nightmare of hatred and iniquity. Perhaps I might have made my hideously scarred face human once again, and perhaps have left this armor behind forever. Yeah, but no. Uh, <laughs> yeah, so we see him eventually confront Modok. Right. And it turns out to not be Modok. Yeah. Yeah. It tur turns out to be like an illusion or a projection of some sort. And then Modoc shows up on a screen marching him and says, You are still a peasant. Uh huh. Yeah. Uh. And also, we have a, get a subplot about somebody within Doom's um, entourage, within his mm -hmm. guise, as potentially trying to betray him or like go rogue. So somebody has substituted for Kenner to kill the Submariner 
and then he attacks Doom with a lead pipe? He attacks Doom with a lead pipe. And you know what? If you're going to come for Dr. Doom, I would say take something way better with you. Like, he's Dr. Doom is wearing armor. Right. Dr. Doom has a personal force field. Uh-huh. And this guy has a pipe. And this guy has, and it works anyway. It does, which is especially dissonant given that earlier in the story we saw uh, bullets bounce off Submariner's just bare chest and face. Yes. And yet Doom has his force field and armor, and yet a lead pipe does the job. So he's beaten up with a lead pipe, and then Kenner, who has just attacked him with a lead pipe, gets atomized by the Cosmic Cube. Yeah, because I feel like we needed we needed to see somebody get eaten by the cube. He is there to create more tension and also see, and also demonstrate the power of the cube. Like he's, that, he seems to be a character just in there to like get eaten by the MacGuffin. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, it's, this makes no sense. <laughs> and I, I, I think I, I got a little way into the third part before I just gave up on this story ever kind of, coming together in any kind of coherent way. Uh, but another guy tries to assault Cindy Jones and she attacks okay. him with her shoe. For good, for good. Well done, yeah. Cindy. Um, uh, more punching. Uh, more punching. Well, uh, she attacks him with the shoe, then runs away uh, dropping the shoe because, quote, Namor may need me. But instead, she runs into Doom, who is about to get burned by the Cosmic Cube and pulls him away and then he wakes up and decides like oh no that's actually what i need yeah it's <sighs> yeah like why did you save me there's yeah why did you save me um i should have gotten the cube but uh oh the hell with it let's just have a few more panels of uh my my airplane looking awesome yeah his airplane looking awesome and yeah the artist really loves uh they really love the airplane and also just Submariner punching robots, which they do yeah. really well, really, that, really well. That's true. Um, that's but you're true. right. Yeah. The plot of this makes no sense. I think I was charmed by the by the relationship between Submariner and Doom, and just also just yeah. really great robot punching. Oh, totally. Yeah, the, I mean, there's a lot to be said for that. A coherent plot is not the be all and end all. No, not at all. Like, I mean, I think about this with um, stuff like this a lot where um, this is not a formulated thought that I came in and had notes on or anything, but uh, sometimes with a lot of fiction, you just want to kind of hang out with the characters and whatever they're doing doesn't yeah. really need a lot of explanation. Um, that's definitely the case here where the fun thing about it is to see Namor just kind of struggle with his amnesia and you know, kind of be arrogant in Dr. Doom's direction. I think it's a lot of fun to see mm -hmm. Namor's sort of contempt, you know, not necessarily go out to normal humans or other folks, but somebody who can kind of like take it and give it back a little. Um, yeah. Also, uh, just so much abs and punching. It's, oh, yeah. Totally. <laughs> yeah, it's great. So, he's so like a movement lines. Yeah, he's like a, a violent homoerotic pinup, and it's great. Do you want to plug a weird history podcast? So the Weird History Podcast is a podcast where I talk about, well, usually short anecdotes that are about maybe 20 or so minutes. 
And uh, we've been on hiatus for a while because I just had a kid, but we are coming back. And in an upcoming episode, I'm going to talk about why movies have a disclaimer about how all characters or events are fictitious. And any resemblance to real things is purely co coincidental. I get into why that is in everything, even stuff that is clearly based on real historical people, events, all of it. Yeah. And is there a recent or forthcoming book you would like to plug? Uh, so I had a book that I wrote back in, it came out in March, 2020, which is, okay. <laughs> which was a great time to release a book. Uh, it's called Storage and Scandalous Portland, Oregon. And it's about Portland history. Um, specifically, it's about vice in Portland history. So talking about um, saloons, gambling, that kind of stuff. The publisher was very into all of those things. Uh, but also talking about the role that sort of like vice and vice regulation uh, played throughout Portland history from the 1850s until the present. Joe Strecker, thank you so much again. Next week, Graham McMillan will be joining me to talk about Thor 182 and 183, and I'll have a pretty neat announcement to make about my book, All of the Marvels. The Voice of Latveria podcast is made possible by the patronage of listeners like you. If you support us through patreon.com slash douglaswolk, you'll get access to our private book club and discussion board for Marvel nerds, the 616 Society. You can find out more about this podcast on our website, voiceoflatveria.com, and follow us on Twitter. This is Douglas Walk for the VOL. Douglas Walk appears by special arrangement with Universe 1218. His book, All of the Marvels, is a guided tour of 60 years and half a million pages of the Marvel comic story. All of the Marvels will be published by Penguin Press this October. Lord Doom commands you to order it. Zero, two, eight. This is the voice of Latveria. Zero, two, eight. This is Doombot JB6 again, reporting from New York City. Due to acts of random aggression from the Fantastic Four, the alien calling himself Gabriel the Airwalker threatened to destroy the world earlier today. The Airwalker appeared to have joined forces with a refugee from Latvian justice, known as the Silver Surfer, and nearly drowned the entire city of New York, with a tsunami. In a surprising turn of events, however, the Airwalker was revealed to be a robot, and fell to pieces, just as Galactus appeared, and noted that the Silver Surfer is also, a refugee from interstellar justice. Galactus has announced, that he will devour the planet in 24 hours, if Reed Richards continues to refuse to turn over the surfer, we'll have more on that as it develops tomorrow. This concludes our broadcast day. May Doom's terrifying face inspire you to devotedly implement his policies, until you die. <laughs>